sure you want the rest of it? Dirty Harry Hello, this is John from Dirty Harry Minute Headquarters. Just a quick message to tell you all out there, we're going to take a month's break. Now don't worry, we should start to upload new episodes from the middle of March. Um, In the meantime, to tie you over, we recorded this special episode about the year 1971. Um... With previous guest Dave and newcomer Hugh. Um, we had a lot of fun on a hot afternoon, um, very long episode, and I hope it's not too Australian centric. Sorry about that. Um, once again, to tide you over until we start uploading new episodes from about the middle of March. Um, thank you for being patient with us. Um, We love what we do, but hey, downloads haven't been that impressive, so it's a bloody good thing we're obsessed with this movie and have committed to the end, Minute 98. But we have had one or two dedicated listeners. Special shout-out to Todd from Iowa for reaching out. It means a hell of a lot to us. We have many great episodes in the tank and the promise of many great future guests on the cards, so please be patient with us and wait till March. Um, By all means, if you want to be a guest, we'd love to have you on. Uh, Please contact us, uh, either the old-fashioned email, contact at dirtyharryminute.com. That's contact at dirtyharryminute.com. There's also dirtyharryminute.com. Who would have thought it? And if you can get there, our Facebook page... Um, Dirty Harry Minute. I'm not au fait with Facebook terribly. I guess you can just search it. You don't have to be invited to join the page. And my personal favourite uh, at Twitter, at Minute Dirty. At Minute Dirty. So that's about it. Please don't be a stranger. Um, if you can like us on iTunes or other platforms, that would be very helpful in finding, uh, in others being able to find us. So, um, in the meantime, sit back, we'll touch base back in March, and enjoy this extra-long stopgap episode 1971. Hey, hey, it's 1971. Three Eastwood movies for everyone. Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute, the only podcast in the world to review every minute of the 1971 Warner Brothers classic, Dirty Harry. I'm one of your hosts, John. Uh, Usual co-host Tim and Trent couldn't make it on this very special episode, but I'm joined by past guest Danger. David, how are you? Hi, I'm very well, thanks, John. Did you enjoy your last few minutes, the suicide jumping scenes? Yeah, well, uh, that was quite a bit of fun. Uh, It's definitely a different scene uh, within that movie because of... uh, Clint Eastwood's direction. So, looking forward to today. Very good. And you're joined by our first time guest, uh, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. G'day, everyone. You're a big fan of Dirty Harry? Absolutely. You're a big fan of 1971? Interesting year. Very interesting year. We've probably got a lot to talk about. We do. 
Um, this is a very special episode, listeners. Um, just taking a little break on the podcast, so we decided to do a review about the the social and political aspects of 1971, the year in which our favourite film, Dirty Harry, was released. Um, yeah, well, 1971 was a, a big year. Danger. What are you? What are your immediate thoughts on that year? Well. Uh- in terms of its relation to Dirty Harry, it was the year that uh, one of the people who I think is most closely connected to the inspiration for Dirty Harry uh, was convicted, uh, which was Charles Manson. Um, I would really say that the movie is probably uh, a response to, number one, the Zodiac Killer, but number two, probably uh, Charles Manson and um, his gang of killers. So, yeah, I think that that is... Um, a kind of interesting connection there. And Hugh, what pops out, we'll obviously talk about the, in detail, what happened in 1971, but what pops out to you most immediately in 1971? Uh, pretty turbulent year. Um, in, uh, I would say, of course, it would be the scaling down of the American presence in the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. although you take that, that's debatable on that. It was also, for an Australia and New Zealand, it was our withdrawal from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. However, the war went on in a very different um, uh, way. Uh, and so there was still uh, a long way to the full uh, uh, pullout. And, uh, but it says also in the context, again, of the film Dirty Harry, is the changing nature of geopolitics and how to deal with the frontier that is the modern world. Yeah. Feminism, Miranda rights, been existing for about half a decade at this time, Danger. Yeah, that's right. Um, Miranda rights were one of the things. Another thing uh, which uh, I guess isn't necessarily as well known is that prison rights uh, started to increase. Attica, Attica. Um, Yeah, so uh, if, for example, you read the book that they based um, the movie Catch Me If You Can on, Uh, He actually managed to escape from an American jail because the prison guards were certain that he must be an investigator (laughs) working for the government and they just let him out of jail. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like there was definitely a few things going on in the late 60s and early 70s, which I think uh, closely connect to um, the feelings of the American public. And I guess, yeah, Harry is a... um, a reflection of uh, conservative feelings, not necessarily um, very right wing, but just probably uh, also an older um, audience. Yeah. You agree you're nodding there, Hugh? Absolutely. And in fact, our film history context, uh, it is what they call a right uh, wing ver- um, vigilante film. Mm. And that, interestingly, the exact same year um, is the first Shaft comes out. Shaft? Absolutely. Uh, African-American, vigilante, other end. Mm. Um, And I go back to the comment about the frontier. Yes. Um, In film history, American film history, there's a long line of the Western. Yeah. Um, Clint just came at the fag end of that, yeah. Absolutely. In a revisionist manner. And Dirty Harry is actually a Western, but it's a Western where the frontier is the city. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've talked before, San Francisco, metaphorically, was the end of the wagon train when you're going West Danger, so... Yeah, definitely. Um, 
But now San Francisco was kind of at the heart of a different kind of battle, which was a cultural battle. Mm. Um, you had uh, the Summer of Love in 67, just a few years before, and definitely the uh, bad guy in uh, Dirty Harry is uh, kind of a distortion of that. Um, in one of the scenes, he's wearing a peace symbol uh, on his belt. Um yeah, so I think that <laughs> it, it, he's definitely meant to be a kind of amalgam. On the one hand, he is quite racist, similar to Charles Manson, but on the other hand, uh, he tries to adopt um, the trappings of the kind of hippie counterculture, uh, also like Charles Manson. Um, so what? That- you like Charles Manson? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying uh, the killer in uh, Dirty Harry is, uh, I would say, definitely... Partly inspired, probably not more than 50%, probably 30 or 40% inspired by uh, Manson and uh, yeah. the way he acted. Um, 1971, Hugh, was also an important year because it's when Jerry, Seinfeld and George graduated and uh, got wedgied and lost their library book. So, in pop culture, and 71 is very important. And it also, in an Australian context, everyone remembers Billy McMahon. Wife, yeah, <laughs> famous Sonia, yeah, Sonia, the famous dress. <laughs> yes. well, that might be a good a good time to start about our neck of the woods danger. Mm. Nineteen seventy one. In many ways, nineteen seventy two was more a more uh, celebrated year because of the events of what happened. But um, in nineteen seventy one, I've uh, Australia was still largely as the sixties had left it. Uh, the country was typified at one end by progressive South Australia with the Don Dunstan Premier, pink shorts-wearing Premier, and at the other end, the Conservative Premier of Queensland, Joe Bioki peterson Premier of Australia's Deep North, I guess, Hugh. <laughs> Good way to put it. <laughs> also, uh, interesting police force that was uh, operating in um, the protectorate of Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> White Shoe Brigade. Well, coming back, I think. Uh, yeah, and uh, also um, it was the year that uh, Don's Party was written, uh, which is um, probably for the American listeners a kind of equivalent of something like uh, Easy Rider um, in terms of its uh, focus on progressives, but at the same time being a little bit uh, critical of their hypocrisy. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's definitely an interesting year in Australia as well. If you'd gone to La Mama in that year, you would have seen a lot of work from the emerging David Williamson, the playwright, the removalist and so mm. forth at La Mama, which was modelled on a countercultural um, theatre in New York with the same name. Um, yeah, because Brett Whiteley was doing his work as well. Yeah. yeah. Things were bubbling away. The Australian film industry hadn't quite come of... Hadn't quite developed yet, but I'm sure Phil Adams was trying to get it started. Oh, well, there were moves to create um, the first... I mean, Walkabout... Yes. Was a hit. And there were some big movies, Wake and yeah. Fright and so forth, but they always had a bit of American tutel- um, or English money behind it, but things were happening. Yeah. The film um, industry was building yes. up. Hadn't quite got, as I know what you mean, yeah. but it was building up. And Walkabout, again, was the frontier um, in an Australian context. Yeah. Did, sorry, did Walkabout come out in 1971? Oh, wow. And okay. he just died, the director, John old. Nicholas Rogue, just died a few weeks ago. Yeah, so Walkabout is an Australian movie, uh, for those of you who aren't aware. Um, yeah, uh, I think the, uh, what's probably better known is uh, the movie Wake and Fright, uh, which I hadn't seen until recently, but I think it's a brilliant movie. Mm. Um, 
quite underrated in Australian film history, probably. Well, it definitely for a long time. Among, yeah, for a long time, yeah. yeah. So, True. yeah. Uh, they did a recent TV remake, uh, which shows that maybe it's done to be appreciated a little bit more. Um, Someone said they removed the homosexual scene. Is that right? The doc? Well, I haven't actually seen it, but I, I just know oh. that they did the, the remake recently. There's um, a famous scene, the, the Rue kill hut. Cole in the movie with Jack Thompson and so forth. They've replaced that with just a pig shooting thing because they thought killing of, you know, culling of kangaroos in the world doesn't look too good anywhere else except in Australia where we need to do it. Yeah, well, but I mean, in the movie, it's meant to be a kind of shocking thing still. I think that Australians have a kind of two uh, prong approach to kangaroos. On the one hand, I think city people love them and they uh, don't want to see them be killed. Uh, but on the other hand, I think farmers uh, often see them as a bit of a pest. Uh, animals that are inclined to knock down fences and uh, sometimes get into plague proportions. Mm. Uh, also, they form a road hazard at night time. Uh, very often, if you drive on a quiet country road, you'll see a series of um, dead kangaroos on the side of the road, which have been hit by cars. And they can cause quite a lot of damage because they're very heavy. But they're delicious. So- Delicious lean meat. So, yeah, I think that Australians feel a little bit... Um, They're bending over backwards trying to... Because even at seven years ago, they were still culling koalas, weren't they, for pelts or something? Up until the 1920s or something? Oh, well, but I mean, that was a long time ago, John. Well, that's 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah. well, I, think, I think it's also, though, I mean, it's because, the, you know, it's our emblem, our symbol. It's our yeah. symbol on our jet, main airlines, it's symbol on our um do Canadians, do Canadians eat moose or not? No, uh, I'm not sure. Not really. I don't think so. Or Canadian, uh, uh, indigenous Canadians, do they, is that, do they eat elks, elks and stuff, Danger? I don't know very much about indigenous peoples of North America. Fellow so Commonwealth uh, Canadians, please. I thought they eat bison. Bison. Mm. Big um, cow things. Bison. Yeah. Reminds me of uh, Street Fighter. Uh, bison were nearly all killed yes. um, in the 19th century. Yeah, Buffalo anyway. Bill didn't help. Yes, that's for sure. Um... Yeah, so back to 1971. Let's talk about Victoria, a home state. Sure. Was somewhere in the middle of those extremes, you know, progressive South Australia and red, redneck Queensland. Uh, Henry Bolte, the, the Liberal Party, he of the bridge fame, had another 18 months left to run of his 17-year premiership. And the early 70s were generally danger, a transitional period for the country. Um Maverick Liberal Prime Minister John Gorton, or Hugh alluded to before, often proved to be too much of an embarrassment to his own his own social class and was in, in the end knifed by his replacement, Billy McMahon, on March the 10th. Do you have good impressions of Billy McMahon, Hugh? Good impressions of Billy McMahon. Uh, I have impressions of Billy McMahon, but I can't say I, I put him as the highest of our, uh, our, our memorable Prime Ministers, but... Uh, Certainly, it was a bit of a weak era in that sort of sense. Although he was he just did, peddling the whole Labor's yeah. communist on the yeah, bed type thing, yeah. yeah. Although, I mean, he did do um, some moves, of course. Uh, you know, important. You know, uh, in the alliance, the ANZUS Treaty was fully um, ratified. Um, Nixon passed that, so that's an important thing, and we've it's been there ever since. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, he wasn't very powerful for, for much longer. And, uh, unfortunately, most people <laughs> remember the wife rather than... Or the, or the, or the fact that he looked like a koala. <laughs> You're a big fan of Nip Tuck with Julian McMahon Danger? Did you ever see that show? I've never watched it. I'm aware of it, though, yeah. Um, yeah. 
We're moving along on the 4th of January 1971, a federal opposition leader of the Labour Party, Gough Whitlam, promised full independence for Papua New Guinea once the Labour government would come to power, uh, which was very white knight, mighty white of him, wasn't it, Hugh? Absolutely. Um, so there was very much a promise to... Uh, to uh, which they kept pro- in the end, right? Uh, yeah, it did get, get, get passed. So that was one of his, you know, um, part of his you know, pledges. Uh, amongst many pledges that he would um, set up. Uh, and for me, I personally do like Goff because he certainly helped the arts. Yes. After Goff Whitlam, we have culture coming out of the arts hole. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's pronounced the yards. <laughs> when, when English people always say New Guinea, they never say Papua New Guinea. Why is that? When I hear Americans talk about it, like, go to New Guinea, they never say Papua. What's yeah. the respect, man? Probably because it's actually, um, it is, originally that's the old word of it. It wasn't, mm. um, when it was the Dutch East. Um, oh, it's in- Papua or Dutch or an indigenous word, I don't know. Well, well Part of it's it, still Indonesia, isn't it? Yeah. Part? Yeah. Uh, Iria, in the West, oh, yeah, yes. West Papua, which is still uh, seeking independence. Uh, the Papua New Guinea, as we know, of course, gained independence. Yeah. Well, a few months later, very famously danger. In July 1971, Whitlam, that same man that promised independence for Papua New Guinea, visited China, mm. um, leaving the same day that US... He left China the same day that the Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, had a secret meeting himself with Tsao Enlai. And the US, the US announced termination of trade controls on non-strategic US imports to and from the People's Republic. Yeah. Yes, uh, Australia does like to um, pride itself that it beat Richard Nixon... To uh, to uh, the Chinese, yep. Um, of course, most uh, countries know of the uh, visit Nixon had of Mao Zedong the next uh, yeah. year. But yeah, we Aussies got there first. <laughs> now, danger, Dave. Um, Nixon visiting the Chinese like that would that have, have appeased the left of the Democratic Party in America? Would they have been quite left generally favourable to Nixon's announcement? I think announcement? That it was seen as a way of kind of painting them into a corner. Um, both parties for a long time had been very anti-communist and, uh, it was a way of, uh, I think Nixon, um, kind of flanking his opponents Mm. on the left. Um, and they would have been surprised by that. So, yeah, I, I, I think that it was quite a strange, uh, thing, uh, as far as most people on the right were concerned, but also probably most people on the left were quite surprised by it because here Nixon had been uh, bombing the Vietnamese Hmm. and uh, then all of a sudden he's going to China, um, even though uh, Mao was in charge and, you know, Mao was uh, probably more communist than the Vietnamese were. So, you know, it's really a different um, kind of approach. It, It wasn't something that was expected, I think. Yeah, Hugh, what do you think of this ping-pong di- diplomacy, as they called it? Well said. Uh, it um, could be the case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right, yeah. Uh, Vietnam, as I said earlier, had been starting to withdraw. It had become a complete mess. Um, and the United But a great States- soundtrack. Great uh, <laughs> soundtrack, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Some of the best songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's America was trying to find a uh, way to uh, get out in a manner that they could actually uh, 
at least come at a, you know, a, a breakout that wasn't going to be a catastrophe for yeah. them. Um, See, both cultures want to save face. Yellow and white faces want to save face danger. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Eastwood would Clint have gone? Would Dirty Harry have gone to China? What was his policy on that danger? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Too dangerous, and I don't want to, to, to think about it. Actually, <laughs> I trade with the commies. That's my policy. <laughs> well, it's like Henry Kissinger was very, uh, very clever in all this too. Um, um, one thing you can say he could, he was a very good way of breakering um, peace deals and creating, but also creating new alliances. A very clever diplomat. Some have heavily criticised him for that as well. So. But um, he, um, you know, he has lasted a long time in um, in American politics. They still use, you know, Kissinger for advice. In July in Australia, David Hugh, Premier Joe of Queensland, declared a state of emergency in response to escalating student protest over the 1971 rugby Springbok tour by the South African team. Matches had to be transferred to venues where two-metre chain-wire fences could be erected to separate players and spectators. A partial victory for protesters resulted in the tour ultimately being called off early. Perhaps to apologise to the people for all the upheaval, in 30th October 1971, SeaWorld Australia was opened on the Gold Coast. And rugby's been on problematic ever since, hasn't it, David? Yeah, yeah, well... (laughs) An interesting uh, kind of look at uh, rugby's role in politics is the movie Invictus, where uh, Nelson Mandela tried to um, connect uh, the white and black South Africans through rugby. Uh, black South Africans were quite sceptical of it because uh, rugby had always been the white person's game, uh, but he knew that he could kind of show that uh, you could bring together uh, the two races by um having uh, everybody be proud of the South African rugby team. Yeah, Yeah, so sometimes uh, you can definitely bring people together. But in 1971, uh, rugby was a... um, uh, The South Africans were very racist. uh, And uh, having uh, their national team was certainly seen as uh, not a good thing because the left was trying to boycott uh, South African sports and uh, South African businesses in order to encourage the end of apartheid. But Joe Bjorki-Peterson, um, getting back to something like Dirty Harry, Joe Bjorki-Peterson was a real uh, rat-wing populist, um, you know, similar to... uh, George Wallace or something? That bad? (laughs) Yeah, well... Segregation today, segregation tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I think that he was similar to a Southern politician of the 1960s, except I I don't think that uh, racism was quite as extreme in Australia. There were certainly a lot of parallels. There was some uh, segregation, but uh, the worst excesses, the lynchings and all of that kind of stuff, that didn't happen in Australia. But definitely a a general right-wing sentiment was uh, quite strong in uh, northern Australia and in Queensland. Definitely. And in de facto terms, segregation was, for practical terms in pubs and so forth, accommodation applied, you know, in northern Queensland Uh, as well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, definitely Australia was uh, segregationist until the 70s, but um, what uh, I'm saying is that America was different and that there were still lynchings. Um, 
uh, during the 50s and 60s, whereas I don't think Australia had mm-hmm. uh, had a lynching since the 19th century. And the comparable thing here is obviously Indigenous people are like Native Americans to us, not yeah. never had a substantial uh, African population of former slaves. Mm. Um, speaking of Indigenous people, Hugh, in 1971, Neville Bonner became the first Indigenous Australian to sit as a member of the Federal Parliament. Um, and tennis ace Yvonne Goolagong, um, that has to be the best name ever in any language, was named Australian of the Year. It's definitely true. Yeah. Pretty big year, actually, for sport in Australian context. The um, uh, Kerry Packers um, One Day Internationals had, had uh, started, and Australia played England, I think it was. Um, in seventy one, so that was passed, um, and also the con the uh, talk on the uh, front about um, the apartheid mm. um, issue with uh, many of the England's top top players are actually South Africans who couldn't play. Ah. and case in point, most of them is uh, known as a uh, Tony Gregg who um, passed on a few years ago, but um, he was one of the greatest captains. He wasn't allowed to play for South Africa. Oh well, wow. yep. Because it was pretty much banned, so um, he was basically hunting around for a team that would, you know, he could be captain for, and the English got him. Here's a question: Would there, listeners, full disclosure, two of the people in this room are just Southerners from Victoria. We don't really know the intricacies of rugby union or league, but I hope there was some Indigenous players on the Australian team that played against them. It'd be very hor- very embarrassing if our team was actually segregated as well. That played against the Springboks. Table that for another minute, I think. Yeah, well, I, I certainly think that there was a lot of uh, South Sea Islanders and the closest thing Australia uh, ever really had to slavery was the way that we treated South Sea Islanders. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we were starting to uh, incorporate uh, some black people into our rugby teams, I'm sure. I, I don't know what year Mal Meninga started to play, but he's a South Sea Islander rugby player and I think he started to play in the 70s, but um, at Queenslanders uh, who are listening and would be able to... Uh, Say more about that. We've got pretty deep here. Um, some serious matters, Hugh. But if you were just a regular Australian, you know, pleb in 1971, you'd turn on your radio, you could have enjoyed or put up with, depending on your own view, Eagle Rock by Daddy Cool, <laughs> Spectrum's I'll Be Gone, and three, um, the Push Bike song which I think the original is Mungo Jerry. In the summertime, you women, you go women on your mind or something, or some song. Um, if you turn on TV in Australia on a Saturday, you'd have seen a new kids show look pretty bad called Hey Hey It's Saturday. Um, if you didn't have kids, you could turn on Spy Force from August 1971. Maybe catch a young um, Russell Crowe. Or if you were just Mr. or Mrs. Demographic, you could watch Young Talent Time for some family sing-alongs. Did you have to endure that show, Danger, when you were a kid? Uh, No, because uh, like you, I'm uh, in my mid-30s, so I was a little bit too young for Young Talent Time. This is where Danny Minogue, Kylie Minogue were first unearthed, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um... So, yeah, Australia really had a kind of cultural renaissance in the 70s and 80s uh, where I think we really started to define ourselves as being quite separate from the English. I think that Australia uh, took a long time to kind of find itself um, and some would say it's still trying to find itself. But I think definitely in the 70s and 80s we started to produce a lot more uh, music, 
films, TV shows. Uh, yeah, so that was definitely a, a good sign for Australia. Something that I found shocking when I first saw it is uh, when I would watch um, old footage on uh, the ABC of Four Corners or another news program. Their voices. Their voices, exactly. You knew what I was going to say. Because uh, TV presenters in Australia in the 1960s and into the um, 70s uh, had English accents. They were not English. They had not lived in England, um, but they had English accents because that was considered the right way to speak. Uh, So that is definitely something that has changed in Australia. Um, Yeah. It's also because um, the film industry, the Australian accent wasn't well known internationally and they didn't quite understand what it was. Uh, so in a lot of film, and and this actually goes to a bigger um, question that I have, is you mentioned um, well about the uh, idea of you know in the seventies and eighties everything sort of uh, um, film art sort of improved a lot, but there was also this sort of sense um, there was one side that was quite progressive and mm. another side said um, everything overseas is better than us. Um, what what. Yeah art that comes over from overseas is going to be as a better quality. Mm -hmm. And even today, Australian artists, uh, I'm talking visual artists and performing artists, uh, really struggle in Australia. And so they take a lot of time overseas, like in Britain and the US. And one of the um, two classic examples is when uh, the Sydney Opera House um, was being constructed. This is in the 70s. Uh, there was um, a huge debate over the context of this thing. I thought, it's not Australian, Mm. it doesn't look Australian, (laughs) and it's somehow foreign. It was made by a foreigner and it shouldn't be on our our harbour. And the other one, of course, was Blue Poles. Oh, yeah. Um, Biggest purchase. Waste of money. Ah! Yeah. So it was the very um, uh, quite right-wing press were... Um, conde- were you know condemning the these concepts yeah. of this, having this foreign, and, mm-hmm. but these were homegrown Australian uh, as well. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, they brought over you know ideas from the US and UK, but they were but the um, artists themselves here, like Sydney Nolan and yeah. um, were coming Patrick back. White, coming Patrick White, we're yeah. coming back to Australia about this time. Um, but and even today, is a sort of the uh, the cultural cringe still exists. Yeah, well. I- you can definitely see the cultural cringe still existing if you uh, observe um, baby boomers in their natural habitat. <laughs> uh, I am uh, living with a couple of baby boomers at the moment, and uh, what I find quite interesting is that they refuse to watch American things, which I think is really kind of a... Very limiting. Yeah, it's quite limiting, and, and I think that it's really connected to an old-fashioned way of viewing Australia. Um, It's kind of connected to this hope that Australia will somehow stay kind of English or something like that. Uh, Yeah, they just watch uh, SBS, uh, which is um, very uh, European-focused. This was set up in the late 70s, listeners, for um, ethnic, in (laughs) close quotes, you know, multicultural... um, programming for Australia's migrants that came after World War II. That's a very, very good channel. Yeah. Yeah. 
But it's definitely interesting how they just uh, don't watch commercial TV. ABC um, is their preferred channel, isn't yeah, it? Which is set up in the beginning very... Um, it's pretty much a clone of the BBC, isn't it, really? That's Without right. deep pockets. Yeah, yeah, it was. With yeah. British programming. And yeah. you'll still get baby boomers apparently calling it auntie, like the English called the BBC their auntie. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I find that quite ridiculous how uh, a lot of baby boomers are, are like this and they just refuse to accept. Uh, I, I would say more... Um, American things, but also I would even say Australian things. They just want to watch English things or European things because they think that's where culture is really at. And uh, even a great show like Mother and Son, have you seen that? Yeah, that feels like a drawing room British type show. It does feel very yeah. English. Yeah, I agree. It's a great show, of course. But uh, well, again, and you're quite right. I mean, uh, the Australian film and television industry struggles the most with with uh, keeping actual Australian viewers. Yeah. Um, most Australians prefer to get um, US or UK or um, cinema. Yeah. It's just not, you know, some people, some people don't even register it. Yeah. The most un-Australian thing you can really do is watch an Australian film. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, even though we look back at it, you know, Stalk, um, sorry, Walkabout and Wake and Fright, great films. No one here saw them. You know what I mean? Like their run here was just for a week or two in, yeah. in Carlton yeah. or inner city screens and then just disappeared. Oh, I have to admit, most of my Australian film viewing is because of studies in film studies. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. have chosen it otherwise. Yeah, I think it's partly because I think that Australia has struggled to define itself. Uh, we, If we try to say, you know, what are we about, um, where it's kind of like... Um, we define ourselves by how we're similar to other countries, but different. Uh, like the English, but without the class system and with better weather. Uh, <laughs> you know, it could be one example or... Um, a beach and a quarry for Asians. <laughs> it could be a, a right-wing um, viewpoint. Uh, or, you know, similar to America, but without um, as much racism, without guns, with better health care... Like a kind of um, socially progressive America, I guess it would yeah. be another way Australians might define themselves. But we don't really define ourselves by exactly what we are, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think that that's, that's part of it. And pulling back to the year 1971. What a year. It was actually, these um, was the time we were actually pushing towards an Asia-Pacific idea. mm uh, as quite rightly said, we had an idea concept of a British um, origin and then a US sort of connection. But now, post-1970s, it was a move towards uh, an actual Asia-Pacific concept. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I agree with that being started. Well, maybe, uh, obviously, you, you had... Whitlam In the ANU going. or something. Yeah. In that part of the tertiary world of Australia, maybe. Yeah. But I think that... You know, the first time that probably most of the Australian public heard a major politician talk like that was probably uh, when they heard Paul Keating nice. talking about Australia That's being true. part of Asia in the early 90s. And then I, I think that most people, most Australians find that a very strange concept um, because most people in Australia, uh, even if they're not uh, of British origin, they're of European origin. So when you 
start to talk about Australia as being part of Asia, even though geographically, obviously, um, we do um, reside in that region. Um, culturally, we are so separate. Um, we're based off such different ideas. We're, we're really based off, um, you know, English uh, law and things like that. So therefore, trying to define us as being somehow part of Asia just doesn't seem to sit right with people because it's geographically true, but in every other way, it's it's not true. And in economics? Well, yeah. I mean, recently, uh, we have become part of Asia. That's true uh, in the sense that we uh, are trying to trade a lot with Asian countries. Uh, going back to the 1960s, Japan became our biggest trading partner. And in more recent decades, um, China has become our biggest trading partner, uh, both for imports and for exports. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, I think Australia wants to somehow have its cake and eat it, eat it too, you know. Uh, Australia wants to get, uh, and this isn't necessarily, uh, I'm not a str- saying Australia is necessarily uh, wrong to feel this way, but I think they're probably a little bit naive. Um, they want to have Asian money, but we don't uh, want to become totally Asian. And I think that that's the way that, uh, th- that's something that Australians are going to have to confront because our immigration policies have been non-discriminatory, which is great. But at the same time, uh, the amount of people from Europe who want to immigrate or the amount of people from North America is much smaller than the amount mm-hmm. of people from Asia that would like to immigrate to Australia. So, yeah, I, I think the 90- early 1970s, uh kind of the beginning of Australians starting to think about these questions, but probably I would say in the early 1990s is when we thought about it much more um, than then. Obviously, 1971, the first, the people that were born in this decade were no longer baby boomers. Were they danger? You'd call them the first generation Xs? Well, technically, I mean, according to the people who make that stuff up... Gen Xs were uh, people born um, from either the early 60s or the mid 60s, depending mm. on, you know, who you read. Saying baby boomers is a little bit of a... Saying anything about generations is a little bit wrong because there's uh, there's no way you can say where one generation begins and another generation. But I like the absolute beginning of the baby boomers, literally like born the demobbed kids, you know, born like 45. 46, 47, the soldiers just come home yeah, really yeah. randy or whatever. Well, that's that's quite... Um, there is something to be said for those people being a separate generation because there was a, a period of time when uh, there was a very small uh, birth rate. Clint Eastwood was born 1930, depression baby, so he's definitely not a boomer, but he's not quite whatever the generation before that was, or maybe he is. Uh, so, Clint Eastwood is considered at the beginning of what's called the silent generation, uh. which is uh, not the greatest generation, which fought World War II, um, and not the baby boomers, but the generation in between. Right. Yeah, known as the silent generation. Silent generation. If you'd opened the newspapers to the birth and death sections in 1971, Hugh, you would have seen God giving and God taking away. On the 1st of April, Lockie Hume, a.k.a. Lachey Hume, star of Let's Get Skase, is born. But on the 27th of May, Chips Raffertree dies, his last role being in Wake and Fright. In the 3rd of July, 1971, Julian Assange is born in Melbourne. 
But on the 16th of October, Robin Boyd, author of The Great Australian Ugliness, dies. On the 20th of October, Danny Minogue is born. Um, the same year that Talent Time, the show that she becomes famous, or her sister Kylie Minogue becomes more famous for, is born. Uh, on the 21st of October, one of the eyes at the end of Danny's name was pronounced dead, leaving her with only two that she has today. Well, that's pretty much Australian 1971 Danger. Would you like to go on a time machine, you know, hit 88 miles per hour and go back to Australian 1971? Do you think you survive? Uh, yeah, I think I'd definitely survive. Um, I think I- Food would be pretty would, short. For myself, I would be interested in actually just looking at how society was, particularly in the context of going to even just to a public bar. Mm. This is a transitional time where... Uh, you know, in the 60s, men wore hats and were the only ones found at a pub, public bar, took at five o'clock at, and on the end of the day or Friday night or whatever. Um, and now that's sort of changing a bit. Yeah, going to the races is changing. The clothes are changing. Um, it's also the time of um, you go to the cricket and there's the old Bay 13 is um, fame, infamous, sorry. <laughs> um, so it would have been, that would have been an interesting time, but... Yeah, I'd only want to glimpse it. I don't think I'd want to actually live in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't want, wouldn't want to be gay either. <laughs> yeah. And um, also just like Europeans used to suffer a lot of discrimination, which in modern day Australia we find very strange. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah. 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 I mean, even going uh, back to the 90s, I've got an Eastern European surname, uh, or as my relatives in uh, Czech would say, a Central European surname. <laughs> um, but- uh, Budapest is further east than Prague, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or Vienna, uh, Vienna is, yeah. But having a surname that starts with J uh, in my extremely Anglo school uh, was considered to mark me out as a foreigner. Um, but then so- 10 years later, when you're a bit older and adolescent, having a J for wrapping purposes becomes very convenient. Yeah, say, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. You just have to wait a bit and these things change. Yeah, well, and uh, but when I, I became a teacher uh, about six years ago, um, I think that at a lot of the schools that I was sent to, I was considered so white as to almost be a, a joke. Um, so, in my high school, I was uh, considered foreign, and um, by the time I was uh, teaching in Western suburb schools, I was considered as white as they come. Um, so, it just goes to show you what can happen. <laughs> Moving over to the UK now, Hugh. You know, that place we talked about before where most Australians wanted to be in the 70s. 1971 was a big year for the UK. The country ushered in decimal currency. Uh, Four years after Australia had done the same thing. Copycats. Um, As Britons fumbled over their new pence at the off-licence, Britons could turn on the TV to watch Bless This House. And a new sitcom show, Unpromising, called Parkinson. Following public concerns over immigration levels, a new Immigration Act would henceforth stop Australian citizens, like Australians, automatically obtaining residency. Um, But the joke was on them. The horse had already bolted. They already had Jermaine Greer and Clive James, so sucked in. In London, a London cinema, you could have checked out Get Carter, uh, Percy, a comedy about a man, I think, whose penis becomes dislodged from him with the soundtrack by the Kinks. Bed knobs and broomsticks. Um, but for me, nothing in the UK was quite as important in 1971 as the music. 
Hugh, just listen to this inventory. 23rd of April, 1971, Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones. Brown Sugar on it. 14th of August, Who's Next, my favourite Who album, featuring Barbara O'Reilly, Won't Get Fooled Again. 9th of September, Imagine by John Lennon. October, Teaser in the Fire Cat by Cat Stevens. Madman Across the Water, which I think has Tiny Dancer on it, Elton John. 8th of November, not my favourite, but I can't deny the success of Led Zeppelin 4. Stairway to Heaven, is that a big song of yours, Danger, or Hugh? Oh, I like Stairway to Heaven. Oh, come on, I have, I love Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> I mean, I know there are those who are, you know, total Led Zeppelin um, sort of... Uh, yeah, heads, I guess. Heads, I guess. <laughs> it got a bit, it is a nice room. Nine minutes, though. Have you ever been with a lady and listened to Stairway to Heaven, Danger? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Um, yeah, but it, it's certainly, it's one of those songs that, uh, isn't ashamed of itself. Um, yeah. similar to Bohemian Rhapsody. It insists upon itself. <laughs> Actually, I love in the, in the Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, movie, the, uh, the uh, kind of, oh, it's six minutes long. It's way too long. If you actually know Stairway to Heaven, it's nine minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think Stairway to Heaven was sometimes played uh, on an edited version so that uh, they could actually, you know, fit it around the way they schedule things on radios. So, yeah. Um, But, uh, you know, I I like a a Bill Bird uh, joke about uh, him complaining about uh, kids these days. Uh, He says, oh, you know, uh, modern music, it's all, you know, rap and uh swearing and about bitches and hoes and stuff whereas back in my day <laughs> it was all uh men who look like women singing about the devil oh <laughs> uh, quaint times um following Led Zeppelin 4 17th of December Hunky Dory came out by David Bowie which has ch changes Although I don't know if it charted particularly well at the time. Uh, it came out the day, incidentally, before Diamonds Are Forever, the Bond film that had Sean Connery back for once. But 1971 also had Rod Stewart's Maggie May, Hugh. Terrible, huh? Uh, look, it's uh, it's actually a pretty good song, actually. I mean, see what you think about Rod Stewart. I mean, it is actually not a bad song. You a fan, David? Not really. Not bad. Your panties don't come down. <laughs> One of his songs reminds me of um, either Pink Floyd's, like I Wish You Were Here, sounds like Maggie May, or one of them sounds sort of the same, and whatever one comes, I'm not looking forward to it on Golf 104 when it plays. Um, we also had Wildlife, uh, Paul McCartney's first album with uh, the fir- yeah, the first, yeah, with Wings, which didn't have any hits on it, but, yeah, didn't do too well. Um Moving away from music, sad news, we had an IRA bombing of the newly constructed relatively post office tower, Hugh. December 8th in Northern Ireland, Sean Russell, an off-member, off-duty member of the Ulster Defence Regiment, was shot dead by members of the IRA at his home. And things got better from that day on, didn't they? Yeah, it's a lo- it was a long con- uh, conflict, that one. I think it's amazing is actually how... It is now, you know, it's a real success story is how they brokered the peace. Um, it's funny, actually, in a context, my parents were just over, um, went last year to to Belfast. Yep. And Londonderry. Londonderry. Um, it's called Derry now, right? Yeah. Um, and um, it's, um, you know, they, 
they know their history and they know, um but they're um proud to say that we've got you know there's there's definitely a peace between the two parts but if you actually look in the context of brexit it's funny that the situation in northern ireland now um because <laughs> some of the northern islanders want to join with the republic of ireland yeah. Because they're worried that they're going to lose all their um, good um, conditions with the EU. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny that uh, the Irish have been so divided by religion and yes. uh, everything, but now the Irish want to be part of, uh, well, want to stay part of uh, the European Union, and England wants to pull out. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it goes to show you, you know. That, that anything can be achieved if you set your mind to it. Um, yeah, it's definitely uh, it's a funny thing that has happened in England. Should I rewatch In the Name of the Father? Does that deal tangentially with Miranda rights and cautioning? And it's just about police abuse, is it? The Guildford Four or whatever that denied rights. And yeah, I, I haven't seen it since the nineties. Um, something quite strange about my school was that it didn't have any Irish people at it, but we used to learn about the IRA all the time. Uh, we used to learn about the Holocaust and the IRA, like, every year. It was either one or the other. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I watched that movie and I, I kind of thought, Ugh, what's the point of this? <laughs> Why do a bunch of Australian kids in the, mm. the mid-90s need to learn about the IRA, which was coming to an end at the time? Speaking of former uh, British colonies, on September 3rd, Qatar gained its independence from Great Britain. A British protectorate since World War One. it mostly enjoyed internal autonomy, but it was formally independent now. Has anyone been there? Have you been? Closest I've been to Qatar would probably be... I went to the airport in Abu Dhabi. Um, Do you think Harry could point it out on a map? Abu no. Dhabi. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, important area, though. Very oil. important. Lots of oil. Oh, yeah. Uh, a few months later, on December 2nd, the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, is established. A new autocratic federation of seven emirates, or prince, roughly principalities, is that right? Yeah. Formerly dependent on UK for 80 years, Abu Dhabi was proclaimed a new capital. Its oil industry instantly made it one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Today, it has the largest number of immigrants of any country in the world, with uh, only 15 of the population being described on the census as native 15%, born. 15%, that is, not 15 people. 15% weren't actually born there. Yeah. But maybe, you know, 30% were born in neighbouring Qatar or something. Once again, has anyone been there? Ever on a stopover, a layover? I haven't uh, been. I have been there, um, just on a stopover. Yeah, it's uh, it feels extremely international in that airport, uh, but mainly Middle Eastern, North African. Um, usually, I think, when... Australians would think about a place being very internationally and imagine lots of Chinese and Vietnamese and stuff. But uh, in uh, Abu, Abu Dhabi Airport, it's like, um, yeah, it's all the countries of North Africa, all the countries of the Middle East uh, and plenty of Europeans. It's, it's a real uh, mix. Um, yeah, it's, it feels a lot like the... Uh, the what is it the bar cantina in Star Wars, <laughs> but without alcohol, right? <laughs> without alcohol, yes, that's right. Is this one of the countries with big like internal snow making machines in the middle of the desert and things? Yeah, they have that, and the the tallest building in the world. This world's fucked, man. 
And if we still have people driving around the CBD of Melbourne, like just advertising on the back, like they're just driving around advertising strip clubs and stuff, we're fucked. <laughs> Global warming. Uh, on December 29th, as late as this, September 29th, 1971, the UK gave up its last military base in Malta. Another country I've never been, but I hear good things, Danger. Yeah, I've never been to Malta. Uh, they are actually quite unique, is that they have um, on their flag is the George Cross. Oh. And uh, the reason they have, and why Britain has a strong tie to Malta partly is to do with uh, they were. Uh, in the Mediterranean, they were the only uh, island or country that could have uh, held out against the Germans and Italians. Hmm. Um, and because of that, um, they were ra- air raided pretty much every single day. Um, it was one of the longest sieges of the war. And uh, they managed to hold out and actually um, uh, help the Allies. And because of that, the... Um, People of Britain awarded the George Cross, which is the highest military honour a civilian can get. And they gave it for the entire um, island country. Mm. Nice. Yeah. And I know that Malta is uh, a very well-educated place. Um, Apparently, if Brexit and Brexit's going to happen, right, the Republic of Ireland and Malta will henceforth be the the most populous English-speaking, like native English speakers of Europe, as it stands, Malta and Ireland, yeah. Um, moving over to continental Europe in 1971, in Norway, uh, North Sea oil production begins for the first time, drastically remaking the country and reversing its languishing economic status since World War One. In Switzerland, uh, a very big year, 1971 for Switzerland, w- women, I shouldn't laugh, women are granted the right to vote for the first time. Uh, liquid crystal displays or LCDs are first successfully produced. And on December 4th, 1971, beg my pardon, uh, Hugh, my French pronunciation, the Montreux Casino, Montreux Casino burns down during a Frank Zappa concert. Uh, Montreux. Montreux. And the event of this burning down of the casino is memorialised in the Deep Purple song Smoke on the Water. And here I was thinking it was about uh, doing bong hits. <laughs> I'm sure maybe Zappa's people doing that in the green room, whatever green rooms were called back in 1971. And most importantly for someone other than me who doesn't care, Greenpeace formally came into existence. Mm. Have you ever been a member of Greenpeace, Danger? Uh, yeah, for about a year I was. Yeah. Amnesty International. For a year and a half. Um, I think over to the US, Dirty Harry Land itself, 1971, was a big year like the UK too for music. In January, we had Pearl by Janis Joplin. Cry, baby! And Tapestry, Carole King, February. LA Woman, April. Big big album for you, Hugh. Pretty cool. Yeah, Riders on the Storm. Um, For me personally, it didn't chart very well at all, but it's a great artistic achievement. Surf's Up by the Beach Boys in August. Oh, who doesn't love the Beach Boys? Come on. <laughs> a lot of people a lot of people don't like them. Um, that's a great album, under underwritten, even though... Hey, Beach Boys for me always means going to the south coast of New South Wales. Ooh, My dad, dad always had... No. Uh, dad, remember, remember cassettes? Yes, yes. And the proper cassettes, you know. 20 classic hits. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you were searching for Sugar Man, Coming From Reality was released in, um, in Australia and South Africa in November. But, of course, 
Uh, it wasn't all great like Rod Stewart. We also had American Pie by Don McLean. Hugh, oh, you go to bat for that song. I, I can probably sing the entire thing. I even know the Star Wars take on it by um, uh, who? They know who always just takes. Green? No, um, Star Wars, Star Wars, anyway, Yeah, I've seen the take from it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Weird Al Yankovic. Ah, uh, yes. Sad news too, 3rd of July, Jim Morrison died. Mm. And he's buried next to French chanteuse called Edith Piaf. Not my bag, baby. Is that how you pronounce it? One of the best places to check out in Montmartre is the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> Back over to the mainland US, though, very important things happen to Angel. Huh? The quarter pounder was first introduced at McDonald's wow. for 53 cents. The first Starbucks opened up in Seattle on the 31st of March. And Coca-Cola produced its first Coke in a plastic bottle. Contributing to the Pacific Island of waste that's now floating around. Yeah. Probably helping out a lot of Cub Scouts. The card game Uno was invented. Big fan of that danger. I did used to play quite a bit of it. Uno. 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 Yeah. Okay. The modern NBA logo was trademarked. I think that blue and red image with the white. Got it. Yep, got it. Um, on the 30th of May, Nike adopted the swoosh as its official logo. Harry could have done well to wear some Nikes in that relay scene, <laughs> couldn't he, Hugh? Absolutely. Um, Federal Express. Um Sponsors of Dave's favourite movie, um, what's it called? Castaway. Castaway. That is not my favourite movie. <laughs> fa- favourite romantic movie? Ugh. was founded by some guy called Fred Smith. Um, importantly for my old self, cigarette advertising was first finally forbidden on TV anyway, on US TV screens. Took a while in Australian sport. I wonder when it happened in Australia. Me thinks it might have been a lot later. Uh, I think it must have been the 90s um, because Benson and Hedges, it was always the Benson and Hedges cricket. Yeah. On TV, though, were they allowed to have advertising, Dave? I can't remember. Uh, I think tobacco advertising in Australia ended in the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe early 80s. I'm I'm trying to think when... Because it was definitely the Benson and Hedges cricket one day internationals were, yeah. were still for a long time. And then it became the VB uh, Victoria Bitter. It all seems so long ago. I know. You must have had a time when it was allowed like in the stadiums on placards but not allowed on TV or allowed in cinema but not on TV. I know. It was such a long time ago. Australia could actually play back then. <laughs> <laughs> I love when you see in elevators there's no smoking sign. Surely in the 60s, Mad Men era, no one really smoked in an elevator, did they? It's just... Cruel. I think I was smoking everywhere. I mean, yeah. if you, you go to some places like China, people smoke like chimneys. Um, did you bring your own ashtray, though, like in Mad Men times? Did the office provide the ashtrays? Actually, um, uh, I went to just recently the uh, old Parliament House uh, in Canberra. Um, and went Canberra. To the- <laughs> it's Peter Gravy. Canberra. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I went in front of Parliament House. Um but uh, they actually had set up um, what it looked like, a, an office looked like in the 1970s. So. And, yeah, horrible wooden brown everywhere. Yeah. Not many spaces for breathing and ashtrays everywhere. Here's where the bum pinching of the secretary. Here's where all that horrible <laughs> Me Too stuff happened. Here, 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 here. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it looked unholy, but it had that 1970s smell. 
The first pocket calculator was released by Sharp Texas Instruments, and Intel released the world's first microprocessor, Hugh, the 4004. And the first soft contact lens ever was commercially available for for consumers. Then a late edition on March the 8th, we had the fight of the century at Madison Square between Joe Frazier and... Muhammad Ali! <laughs> I just... Spare, spoilers. Spoilers. Who won that? Was it Ali? <laughs> he can sting like a... What is it? Um, Float like a butterfly. Sting, sting like, like a, a bee. Um, in the economic sphere, uh, John Connolly, the US Treasury Secretary... Uh, successfully convinced President Nixon to punish Europe by pulling the plug from the Bretton Woods system. He does this by floating the US dollar, meaning that the dollar is no longer tied to any gold reserve. And Connolly recommends this to Nixon, saying, My philosophy is that all foreigners are out to screw us, and it's our job to screw them first. What do you think about that, don't you? Is this the same Connolly that was in the assassination in Dallas, or was that another Connolly? I'm not sure about that. Uh, yeah, that philosophy is um, what they call realism. Realism. Yes. Sound like a Trump advisor to you? They're all screwing us. He definitely sounds like a Trump advisor um, because he said it out loud in public. Um, he didn't just think it. So, yeah. <laughs> this, of course, came at the time of uh, the famous stagflation, combination of high inflation and high in- high unemployment, both at the same time, previously considered not a possibility, the US had begun to print more money as inflation rose. As a result, creditors wanted to be paid back only in gold, not in the suspect US dollars, which were worth less. The US dollar had been the reserve currency of the world because it could be reliably converted into gold, which had constantly been at a price of $35 an ounce since the Depression. On the 15th of August 1971, Nixon suspended convertibility of the dollar into gold and at the same time put a 10% tariff on imports. Uh, Many people have said this is the first initial proto-part of pro-market reform of Reaganomics, but 10 years before. Hmm. I think Whitlam did the same thing. He just to try and reverse the effect of stagflation, just put a surprise 10% um, impost on all incoming uh, goods from overseas. Yeah, well, I, I mean, something that America had done, which other countries... Well, uh, something that America had kept, which other countries had long gotten rid of, was a penny of the US dollar to gold. Mm. Um, so, yeah, America getting rid of that was um, a bit overdue. Uh but, you know, it's funny, our ideas about money have really changed over time. Uh, we used to think that money had to be tied to gold, mm. and then we realised it didn't. And then we used to think that governments couldn't print money, otherwise uh, it would cause a lot of problems, um, in particular inflation. And then they did it in the global financial crisis, and it didn't cause inflation. So I guess economists don't always know what they're talking about. It's funny when you think of currency like a dollar. It's just a promise to pay, right? Mm. And so it shouldn't really matter if convertibility is an issue, but back then people thought it was, you know. We're only going to take this currency uh, seriously if it's related, if these bonds can be redeemed quickly for something that the world believes has value. Um, so other nations had to choose. Were they going to join the US in allowing the market to set the price of their currency or to reassert controls in other ways. Uh, Billy McMahon, he switched uh, Australian dollar to be convertible from the British pound to the US dollar. 
dry subject of economics over. First of October, Disney World open, Hugh. Yes, and I have actually been to Disney Walt Disney World in Florida, oh. and uh, that was one of the dying wishes of Walt Disney himself was yes. to create uh, the Florida Epcot, um, which was meant to be a, a uh, interestingly was about a modern city that could be uh, involved General Electric, mm-hmm. General Motors, and a whole bunch of other high tech all in one area. I have an electric car, but I don't go very fast. Yes, absolutely. Or very far. <laughs> but when they made it, none of it, none of his ideas came through. Mm. Poor, poor Walt Disney. The film studio had secretly been purchasing large tracts of cheap swampland near Orlando in central Florida from 1965. Walt Disney himself died in December 66 before construction began, and it was left to his brother Roy to take over the project, postponing his own retirement. Thank you, Roy. The complex consisted of Magic Kingdom Park and the contemporary Polynesian and Fort Wild Wilderness Resorts. Roy died two months later. Poor old Walt died of lung cancer. He smoked too much. The original price for an adult ticket to Disney World in October 1971, two months before Dirty Harry came out, was $3.50. Or at the time, sorry, 6.6 new quarter pounders. (laughs) Quite cheaper than... Yeah, ticket would now go for, I think. Have you been to Disneyland as well? No, no. only um, um, Walt Disney World in Florida. I went to Disneyland in Shanghai and uh, <sighs> prices are like Australian prices, which by Chinese standards is pretty high. So, yeah, I think Disneyland has a... Or, no matter where Disneyland is, it has a tendency to be pretty expensive. I remember... Did you have fun though, don't you? These days. Um, it's more for kids. Yeah. yeah. Did, did, did you have it in the case that was like Walt Disney money? It was like Disney money that you could pay, which was ended up being, of course, highly inflated and highly yeah. not worth anything. Oh, that Simpsons you get through return styles, and it's like ninety yeah. percent of shops like don't use spring, don't use uh, Disneyland currency. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I was only six years old. In my mind, I always assumed that Disneyland was the bomb, right? The cachet, the premium thing, yeah. flagship. But I don't think so. I think Disney World's quite well. Maybe Disney World is b- yeah. bigger and considered. Yeah, better, it yeah. is, but I think Disneyland's because it's the first in LA. It's and the first one I think is still considered the sort of you know the flagship. Mm. And Walt Disney World was uh, you know a new place to set up, and um, so but uh, it is much much bigger, and it has like it's like Euro World and Egypt World and Epcot. <laughs> Would you prefer to have seen Harry run for Scorpio like the quarry scene at the end, but run through what around Walt Disney yeah. World? That would be, that would be one heck of an amazing experience, though. You got to admit, it goes from goes from Cairo to like Paris, and then goes. <laughs> um, if you went to the movies in the mainland US, you could have, of course, seen the big hitters of the year: Fiddler of the Roof, yep. Fiddler of the Roof, yep. or, or on the Roof, Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Hopefully, he wasn't fiddling any. I don't. <laughs> Uh, Fiddler on the Roof uh, earned $75 million, which was twice the uh, proceeds of Harry. Uh, the French Connection, Diamonds Are Forever. Um, the Darling Show of the Year, The Last Picture Show, Carnal Knowledge with Jack Nicholson, and A Clockwork Orange, which we've talked many times about on the podcast. Um, not as popular monetarily at the time, but iconic now were Straw Dogs, uh, St- yeah, Clute, uh, Roman Polanski's Macbeth, The Anderson Tapes, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Last Movie, and Frank Zappa's 200 Motels. 
But our personal favourite, Willy Wonka. You a fan of that movie? Oh. Why wouldn't I be? <laughs> if you're after a slice of science fiction, you could also catch Omega Man, Escape from Planet of the Apes, and THX1138, if you could find it quickly. Is that a fan of yours? Is that you a fan of THX one one three? Fan, yeah. Gee, I want, is it possibly because it would have been done by George Lucas or more that it was filmed in San Francisco on the new municipal BART system, the train system? So, in fact, when Harry, when Scorpio was killing the woman in the bath, in sorry, in the bath, in the swimming pool, you can see the BART being built in the background. So, this is the municipal um, uh, airport line, the train danger that was being made. Comedies that might have tickled your fancy included. Uh, Harold and Maud, and Woody Allen's Bananas. If you're at the library, you could read the new book, The Exorcist, Conan the Buccaneer, both of which would lead to cinematic versions in the new future with different names. If an American was bored, they could turn TV on to catch the Mary Tyler Moore show, The Odd Couple, The Partridge Family, uh, Sesame Street premiered on ABC on the 4th of January, and the electric company was formed by some man called Bill Cosby, and I think an allegation dates to this year as well. If you turned off the TV, you could go to the theatre to see Godspell, um, Grease, um, and Jesus Christ on Broadway. Not Jesus Christ himself. I believe that's Jesus Christ Superstar. Superstar right? Cut his balls on a petrol... What was it? That was the line we had at school, making fun of it. Um, over to that great institution that Americans are very concerned about, the courts. As Harry began filming on April 9th, uh, Manson was sentenced to death. On April 20th, the Supreme Court rules that busing children as a means of dismantling school systems was constitutional. Swan versus Board of Education. Um, yeah, Charles Manson. But obviously there was a... Uh, Californian courts had overruled death penalty for like a year or something, hadn't they? So he was in that sweet. sweet it, was, it was the next year. Oh, okay. So yeah, so he was um, he got out of it. Uh, yeah, but um, you know, like I've said before, I think the Zodiac Killer was more of an inspiration. Um, but yeah, Manson was definitely part of things. I th- I think that uh, his killings were a real shock to American society. The the fact not only um, were a bunch of people killed, but also the fact that he managed to convince other people to kill for him, um, and they were young uh, hippies, you know, kind of a well, young women uh, who had moved to California because they were lost, similar to a lot of people who had in the late sixties. That was a shock to older generations. Do you think Scorpio could have convinced people to join him? Does he have that charisma in the movie? He doesn't have that charisma in the movie, no. Uh, in the movie, he is more obviously a bad guy, but Manson managed to um, convince, you know, quite a lot of people that he wasn't as bad as he really was, including uh, your friend, or maybe not personal friend, uh, one of your uh, idols. Um, was it Brian Wilson from the Beach Wars? Yeah. yeah, he was involved with Dennis Wilson for a time, wasn't he, because of the women he could offer Dennis Wilson? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, he was obviously bad, but it took uh, some time for people to see how bad he was. Michael Jackson bad or <laughs> real bad? No, he, he was real bad. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> On to 
On June 13, the New York Times began to publish sections of the Pentagon Papers, an internal report commissioned in 1967 by then-Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. Uh, The reports revealed many large-scale attacks that the U.S. public were not aware of, um, causing many U.S. citizens to lose trust in the U.S. government and army, and only recently, I think, have the documents become declassified. Very damaging allegations revealed by the papers, Danger. Yeah, yeah uh, well, I mean, I, I guess people... About bombing in Cambodia, is it? Uh, no, no, no. No, uh, it was old news, but what it showed... Oh, sorry, it was it was about things that had happened in the past. Um, but what was surprising to the American public is basically a lot of the um, politicians thought it was a bad idea, but they had been... They thought that continuing the war was a bad idea, uh, including McNamara... Uh, but they kept getting overruled by politicians who basically um, said that it was going to be too embarrassing to admit defeat. So the war had continued on while people were saying they could still win it but publicly, but in private they were saying they were going to lose it. The war had continued on after lots of people involved had said that it was a bad idea and thousands of uh, American and Australian soldiers were sent there. Uh, So it just showed that the politicians were very uh, hypocritical and what they said in public was very different to what they felt in private. Um, So that was a a big thing. Absolutely. It was almost uh, they contradicted what they originally were planning to do in all their discussions in what they called the Paris Accords. Uh, And uh, in the end, countries like Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia Mm -hmm. were put in a... um, were ended up becoming... Um, puppets in someone else's game. Yeah. Particularly the geopol- geopolitical situation of post 1970s US, USSR, China, Russia. Yeah. Do you think Harry would have been paying clear attention to this when he was eating his hot dog? He'd be reading each instalment of the Pentagon Papers and reproduced in the San Francisco Chronicle, Dave? Well, I think someone like uh, Harry Callahan would have thought that. Uh, Nixon was a good guy, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, they, they just, they, they, I think that someone like him would have seen the world in a very kind of black and white yeah. ways, uh, would have seen the spread of communism as being a bad thing, uh, and it needed to be stopped, uh, so they probably didn't have time to, or uh, didn't think to care about someone like Robert McNamara uh, privately agonising about uh, the winnability of the Vietnam War because I think people like Harry Callahan, even in the in 1971 would have uh, been thinking we're definitely going to win this you know America can't lose a war America is so strong America is mm. so great you know I mean the, the movie is definitely uh, a chauvinist movie um, not in the feminist um, sense. Well, I guess in, in in that sense as well. But the movie is definitely a movie that appeals to people that you know believe that um, America is an exceptional country. Well, it's a very much a modern Western film. The old classic Western is changed from the uh, frontier of uh, the uh, you know the American West to the frontier that is the city. And the other, you say, show this mat- uh, macho mm. element is very much 
the prevalence of the gun. Um, now, his gun, um, Harry Callahan's gun, is a Magnum. Now, a Magnum is a military-grade pistol. Um, and a, most police officers would have Colts, um, and that was a revolver. Mm. The Colt um, yep. was the classic revolver, but it would have been a small revolver. Mm-hmm. 35, 38, whatever they're called. Yeah. He has a Magnum. That is also a revolver, but it is based on the classic Western gun, which is the Colt 45, U.S. Mm. Army Colt 45. Yeah. Um, and it, it is odd that why would he need a military-grade um, pistol? He's under. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a vigilante. Yes. Well, yeah. And the other element of this, you're talking the Vietnam War context, is by 19, um, 1971, uh, it's getting harder for the um, to get a result that the Americans want. And some are outright pulling out, while others are becoming more sort of specialised, um, particularly the Green Berets, um, and they're linked to the CIA. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, to interrupt you there, um, people often complain the rah, rah, rah Green Berets movie, you know, John Wayne did. Mm. Um, essentially, he's just replacing, you know, the Vietnamese hordes of the Viet Cong and the VMA are just like cowboys, like Indians, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, that sort of element come, is in, in yeah. play. And um, these units have often highly, um, d- you know, dangerous weapons on their hands that they're given support of. Mm. And it almost reflects in, in Harry Callahan that he's got, as a vigilante, um, he's a beret himself in the streets of San Francisco, um, and he carries a Colt forty five Magnum. Oh, another link. Um, Jim Morrison's dad was in the Navy, and I think he had some role in the Gulf of Tonkin. He was one of the supervising admirals or rear admirals, and that's, that's a bit of a link to uh, Vietnam and uh, the doors. Well, I think if we move to international news now... Um, Bye-bye, America. On February the 2nd, 1971, um, Major General Forrest Whitaker took control of Uganda, soon to become one of the worst and notorious dictators of modern times. <laughs> I'm talking of Idi Amin, of course, here. Um, over to the subcont- former subcontinent of India. Um, March 71, Pakistan military um, attacked Bengali civilians, causing an, ex- an exodus of refugees. Uh, on the 1st of August 1971, George Harrison arranged the concert for Bangladesh in New York to support uh, funds and medical supplies for these Bengali civilians. On the 3rd of December, border skirmishes between India and Pakistan erupted into a full-scale war. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, it was actually, as claimed, it was the sh- one of the shortest wars in, in history, military mm. history. It didn't last very long. Um, and when the Pakistanis invaded what is East Pakistan, was East Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, the Indians supported the Bangladesh movement, and uh, the uh, Pakistanis realised it was a hopeless case to be there, pulled out, war was concluded, Bangladesh uh, conceded independence. December 16th, Pakistan surrenders, making it one of the shortest wars in history. The result of this war is that Bangladesh is finally independent, no longer formerly East Pakistan, but lots of its citizens are now refugees outside of its territory uh, in India. Well, that's pretty much everything that happened in 1971 in the world. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, yeah, I can't think of uh, much else to say about the year. Um, It's certainly uh, part of a few years, I would say between 1967 and 1973, where... 
um, the Western world started to uh, change. Um, well, it had been changing for a while, but I, I think that uh, the changes became more obvious for everybody to see. And, um, yeah, you saw uh, the wind down in the early 70s of the Vietnam War. Uh, you saw a backlash against um, you know, liberal America. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was the beginnings of, uh, some good things and some, the beginnings of some bad things, I think, uh, for American society. So, yeah, it's definitely, uh, interesting for them. And I think in Australia, it was kind of the beginnings of a, a cultural renaissance, which was, uh, good to see. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's an interesting period of time, uh, in, definitely uh western history anyway your thoughts you i think it's a really a real flourishing in film mm-hmm. um, creation again that renaissance happened um in australia but also um the uh it was a uh, sort of a flourishing in um the west as in the u.s with their film particularly shows movies like harry callahan yep. and Bullet, um as well as you know the um you know the great dramas of the era mm-hmm. too um, but I like uh, what the um, is that there was a change from the the old western became the new um, the urban uh, urban vigilante film, which still exists. Yes, um, and there are, it's uh, still very much debated today. Well, of course, we've saved the best to last. Danger, the absolute best thing to happen in 1971 was on December 22nd. It was the world premiere of Dirty Harry at Lowe's Market Street Cinema. And you can find footage of this online. We'll put a link in our show notes, dirtyharryminute.com. Uh, Dirty Harry was released, the, or the premiere was the same day as Straw Dogs as well. Um, and that's it. Two days later, Corey Hayne was born. On the 24th of December, Ricky Martin was born. And then 25th of December, Christmas Day, is that right? Justin Trudeau, now Prime Minister of Canada, was born. There you go. Well, thank you very much, David. No problem. Hugh, thank you for unpacking this uh, the year in which this, the milieu in which uh, uh, Harry was was shot in in April and released in December nineteen seventy one. Hopefully, I can catch you for later minutes. Um, Hugh, you haven't been on any actual minutes of the movie, but. You'd love to come. Any favourite minutes in particular? The bus scene or... Yeah, I really like the bus scene, but my <laughs> particular favourite is actually the scene, the confront, first con- real confrontation scene where the at the um, sort of the uh, memorial and you oh, see the, the cross. cross. You see the cross. Yeah. Very clever piece of film work there. It was beautiful. We've yeah. already done that, unfortunately, so you're going to have to pick something a bit later on. Oh, there's there's many parts of a uh, great so you probably don't want a boring DA scene about the I'm saying that man had rights. <laughs> They're gonna be hard to find view reviewers for. <laughs> yeah. Well, David Hugh, thank you very much. No problem. Hopefully, we'll catch you next time on Dirty Harry Minute. 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 It's 1971 Starbucks is new to everyone Pocket calculators are really neat 
plastic Coke bottles litter the street Mariner 9 is off to Mars In Melbourne is born Julian Assange Pakistan records so many deaths is not far gone and we don't know about this Elton John he did your song independence for New Guinea ping pong diplomacy Disney World THX double one three Sesame Street quarter pounders both are gray. Swiss women can finally vote. The country glows and China's opening up. The West comes on board. Apartheid sports teams are deployed. Who's next? Zeppelin four. The fight of the century is here. The sixties not far gone. Prison riots, Yvonne Gula The tennis really race. Bussing kids to. Here comes 